On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Michael Lynch about John Davenant and hypothetical universalism. So we cover topics like what is hypothetical universalism? What are the typical arguments in its favor? What's the Lombardian formula? And how is it used in the 16th and 17th centuries? What does Davenant think? What's his argument for uh, hypothetical universalism and against the alternative viewpoints? And how does the will of God, the divine decrees, all those sort of things play into this? And is hypothetical universalism really a Catholic and Reformed Orthodox belief? And much, much more. As always, if you have questions about the episode or ideas for, or requests for the show in general, you can hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that's devoted to serious thinking for a serious church, but we want to do that with particular virtues in mind. And those are charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. Uh, We hope that we both promote those things, we embody those things, that we can encourage those things in both our listeners and those who are not our listeners uh, to create a more uh, kind and generous, uh, committed, reformed Catholicity. In that spirit, I'm really looking forward to talking to Dr. Michael Lynch about hypothetical universalism, John Davenant, and all sorts of things related to that. I think it, this is going to be a lot of fun. Um, he's super smart, and I think this topic is super interesting. So it's going to be a perfect combination. So before we get into it, though, uh, Dr. Lynch, can you give me a brief just background? Who are, who are you? What are you doing now? Um, and then what got you interested in thinking about this topic and writing your dissertation on it, spending however many years of your life dedicated to reading all these texts? Yeah, so um, I did my undergraduate work at the Moody Bible Institute. Then I went to RTS Jackson, uh, Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, um, that's where I actually got interested in um, Davenant and hypothetical universalism. I had studied Richard Muller and kind of I, I had been I was a historical theology major at the Moody Bible Institute, which kind of I mean I have just always been very interested in the cross section of theology and history. Um, so it was kind of I was kind of naturally inclined to reading Muller type stuff and reading early modern theology. Um, in seminary, I uh, was led to read uh, uh, Davenant, and I was blown away uh, by what I was reading and realized that um, that Muller had been doing just a little bit of work on the topic and that basically it was wide open. Uh, and it was kind of like set for me to do some heavy, heavy lifting on the topic. So I sought out to study under Richard Muller at uh, Calvin Seminary, which is where I went. Um, so he was not my advisor. Ultimately, Lyle Bierma, Dr. Lyle Bierma, who's written on the Heidelberg Catechism, he just published a book on Calvin and baptism, um, which I hear is very good. I have, I have not actually had a chance to look at it yet. Um but anyways, I, I, I went there. Muller was retiring. I actually didn't know that. Well, when I applied, that was not knowledge. Uh, that was uh, So I get there and I find out, oh, he's not taking any more doctoral students. So I got to have him for all my coursework, all my normal coursework. I had him 
but um, but Lyle was the one that did my which which is actually very profitable. I mean, Lyle was great. Um, he 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 was very hands on uh, and helpful, and uh, and in fact, it was his oversight that probably helped me to get it published with Oxford University. So, you know, in some ways, uh, it worked out very well. Um, um, and I'm thinking to myself, if Mueller had overseen it, I might not have been able to publish it with Oxford because he's the editor of that series. And so anyways, there would have been like a conflict of interest uh, in some way. So anyways, all told, it worked out really well for me. Um, I got Birma and uh, Dr. Mueller to read it and discuss it with me and talk about it. So anyways, uh, yeah, so th that was basically it. I grew up um, kind of Baptist and then um, I became reformed uh, uh, while I was at the Moody Bible Institute. I was kind of your young, restless and reformed John Piper-ish Baptist at the time. And I, so when I say reformed, I mean, I mean, uh, Calvinistic. And then um, and then I became a Pado Baptist and now I'm in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. So, so m most of the listeners know that Lots of times I get I get mocked because I ask for very specific definitions and I get mocked about this on Twitter all the time. But at, from reading through at least most of your book, I can tell that this is going to be a topic that very specific and clear definitions are super important. So um, let's just start with a definition of, of hypothetical universalism. And I know we'll have to define some other terms along the way, but just um, as big picture wise, what is this view of hypothetical universalism? Yeah, so the way that I'm using it, which is not necessarily the way anyone else is using it um i don't claim to uh to set the agenda in fact the term is not davenant would have never even known about this term right which suggests it's a very ahistorical term to begin with but um in in you can read my book has a discussion of when it arose and these sorts of things um the way that i define it um in, uh, I'm reading Davenant again for a Davenant Institute class that I'm teaching, so it's kind of really clear in my mind. Um, I, I think we should define it um, as something like a belief that God intended Christ to die for all such that he... Um, made a universal remedy for the sins of all people. So one of the ways that you could talk about that is basically he, 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 uh, he made a universal satisfaction for sins, right? For all sins, he died, right? Uh, if you want to talk about it in kind of a penal substitutionary sort of way, right? Uh, but anyways, that, that's it. Um, it goes back, the language in my mind goes back at least to Aquinas of Aquinas calling Christ's death a uh, a universal cause of salvation, uh, just as the uh, just as Adam was a universal cause of death to all men, so Christ is a universal cause of salvation to all men. So maybe as a, as a follow up to that. Um... Take us back a little earlier in in church history, because I know the the controversy between Augustine and Pelagius plays a role in this whole discussion. And there's 
important uh, debates in the early church and in the medieval, and then on into obviously the Reformation period with with Davenant. But let's let's just start in the early church. So what 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 going on in that controversy has a bearing on on, on hypothetical universalism? Yeah, this is a very complicated actually topic. Um, this is why there's very little written on it, I think. Um, I mean, the main concern between the Pelagians, the now called semi-Pelagians, or the kind of Gallic, uh, uh, Gaelic um, theologians in France at the time, um, who kind of are more monkish in their nature. And then finally, Augustine. I mean, the question is largely over grace um, and predestination and those sorts of things. And only obliquely touches on the death of Christ. You had the charge, the semi-Pelagians, and of course that's a, a historical term as well, right? It's, it's an early modern term, actually. Um, but the semi-Pelagians, they, they claimed that Augustine held that Christ only died for the elect. Um Augustine does not directly respond to this charge, largely because by the time that the semi-Pelagians start attacking, he dies. And so um, there's one of his main disciples, Prosper of Aquitaine, responds. Uh, and, and Prosper himself is a, uh, is a Frenchman. I mean, G Gaelic, but of course, uh, nowadays, uh, modern-day France. And he responds to his semi-Pelagian you know, peers, he's a layman, um, uh, but a very learned one, very, very learned one. He's writing Latin po theological poetry. So, you know, you know, average lay people aren't doing that, I don't think, um, in the day. So uh, anyways, he um, he responds by saying that this is a basically a false charge. It's a false accusation. They have never claimed that Christ uh, only died for the elect. Um, and so there, some of these things, some of this language comes up and there are other questions closely related to for whom Christ died and the extent of Christ's atonement that kind of are touched on here and there. Um, but it doesn't really, uh, be come to a head until later on actually with, um, uh, Gottschalk, um, Gottschalk, uh, uh, well, Actually, it, it, it does come to a head, actually, about a century after uh, Prosper dies, it, it comes to a head a little bit, uh, again, in, in, in France. But I'm, I'm going to pass that over for a moment, uh, just because I don't have the names on hand, and uh, it's it's been a while since I've read through all that stuff again. But um, but Gottschalk, I mean, very clearly says Christ only died for the elect in any sense. Uh, uh, and then uh, on the opposite side... Um, I'm forgetting the bishop's name at the moment. He's a he's a Hinkmore Hinkmore of Reims. Reims um, uh, responds by saying, "No, Christ died for all." Well, then there's a synod. Um, I think it's the synod of Arles, maybe. But again, uh, don't take my word for it. It's been a while. Um, uh, 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 there's a synod in, this is, by the way, this is like uh, ninth century AD. Um, I think this is all happening ninth century. Uh, Gottschalk is like eight, 800s. So um, there's a synod that claims that both are wrong. Uh, it, they claim that Gottschalk is limiting the death of Christ too narrowly. 
they claim that I think it's Hinkmar, if I'm not if, if I'm not mistaken, um, is his opponent. Uh, they say that Hinkmar is uh, widening the death of Christ and the extent for whom Christ died too broadly, and they want to. And now I'm going to use our own language here. They want to limit the death of Christ to the covenant community or those to whom the gospel has actually been preached. Right? So it's like a midway point. Like Owen would not be satisfied. Davenant wouldn't really be satisfied. Uh, actually, you know who would, I think, be satisfied is John Ball, of all things. He was uh, he wrote on the covenant of grace. He was very, um, uh, he was kind of like, uh, uh, during the uh, early modern period, lots of the Westminster divines uh, were very appreciative of Ball's work on the Covenant of Grace, and he kind of argues that position. Anyways, all that to say is, sorry for the long answer, but there it is. That's good. So, I mean, all the debate that's going on here, I I do want to zero in on Davenant and what his arguments are for it. And I mean, maybe this takes us to the Senator a little bit right now. But just thinking Davenant specifically, what is his argument and thinking uh, on this? I guess is it would you call it the Lombardian formula? Yeah, is that the technical term? Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, so Peter Lombard, uh, who wrote very famously his four books of the sentences, which is kind of like a, I don't know, it's like a, well, it's a systematic theology, but it's a systematic theology that's kind of highly emphasizing the early church and their positions on various things. Uh, So it quotes a lot like of Augustine, especially anyways. um, So Peter Lombard in book three of his sentences, if I'm not mistaken, um, very famously at least codifies the kind of like lingo that everyone post him starts to shorthand. And if you go back and you read Lombard, Lombard says, Christ is our high priest. And as our high priest, he died for all insofar as the sufficiency of his death is concerned. And he died for the elect alone insofar as the efficacy of his death is concerned. And that gets co-opted in this language. Christ died for all sufficiently using the word the adverb and the adverbs modifying how did christ die for all he died for all sufficiently and then christ died for the elect alone how did he die for the elect alone efficaciously when you get into the early modern period if 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 you uh perhaps would allow me to indulge myself a little bit on the reception history of this of this Lombardian formula, which is very important for the history of Reformed theology in particular. Some of the Reformed, Beza being the earliest person whom I'm aware of, although, and I I will say that even those that agreed with, who didn't like the Lombardian formula who were Reformed, also said that Beza was also dislikeful of, of, of it, and they would name him as the first name. So this isn't me trying to say like a Calvin versus the Calvinist sort of thing. I'm just saying Beza is the guy, man. Beza is the guy that really starts this controversy in some ways among the Reformed. Hey, you know, don't take it up with me. Take it up with people that even agreed with him. They saw him as their progenitor, okay? Um, uh, he says he... He, he thinks that the language of the Lombardian formula is 
unhelpful. Uh, he, he, he expresses dissatisfaction for it. Uh, what ends up happening is some Reformed people do not like the language that Christ died for all sufficiently because they're denying that he died for all with the intention to die for all. There cannot be, they want to deny any sort of intentionality on the part of the Father of sending Christ to die for the non-elect in any way. So what ends up happening is they start to, they, 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 and they know that they're doing this, by the way. It's not like they're trying to hide this, but they start rephrasing the Lombardian formula. They'll say, they'll say the original Lombardian formula, Owen does this. You can see this in the death of death. There's a whole section where he talks about this. Uh, he, he, he says he gives the original schoolmen, the scholastic, uh, uh, language of Christ dying for all sufficiently, Christ dying for the elect alone efficaciously. He says, yeah, no, no, no. We revise it uh, because we don't like this, the word for uh, being used for the, uh, for, for all. And it's basically Christ's death is sufficient for all. And Christ's death is effectual for the elect alone. Now note a couple things. First off, no longer is intentionality part of this situation. It's only talking about the death of Christ itself. And then it's using adjectives to describe that death. That death is sufficient. That death is efficacious. Whereas in the older language, they were adverbs describing actions that presume an actual intentionality on God's part. Right? And so that's what's going on. Okay? Now... This is this is the whole debate among the hypothetical universalists, the English hypothetical universalists, and um, the Owenian side of things. Okay, and Owen's not alone. It's you know Samuel Rutherford, Johann Piscator, even Beza, real early. Um, yeah. So before Beza, I just want to note that before Beza, everyone was okay with Christ died for all sufficiently Christ died for all or Christ died for the elect alone efficaciously to the degree that they understood that to include him actually dying for all in any sense uh then uh they're out of step with Owenian kind of uh the Owenian position which flat out denies that he died for the non-elect in any sense so the Owenian position is is that is that what you're calling in your book the bare uh, sufficiency? Yes. Yeah. So bare sufficiency just says. So uh, if we use an analogy, uh, uh, this is an analogy that I'm going to use, but it, it is it is directly tied to the analogies that are being used in the early modern period. Uh, Bishop Usher uses this analogy. Davenant uses this analogy. In fact, Owen uses this analogy, um, at least broadly speaking. Um, what everyone agrees on. So Owen and Davenant and everyone in between reformed, everyone agrees that there's enough value in the death of Christ itself that had God intended for it to be for more than the elect, he wouldn't have had to have done anything else. He wouldn't have had to spill any more blood. That it's of infinite value because it's the God-man. This is the God-man dying, right? Mm -hmm. This is the blood of God is the language that they actually often use, right? It's infinitely valuable. But here's what they're denying. 
they're so so let's put this in a sense say uh one of you all is in jail for something horrific i would never want you to be in that situation um but your bail is a million dollars okay internal sufficiency this bare sufficiency would claim that um we would say that donald trump's bank account is inter is uh, is bare is sufficient valuable to get you out of jail but here's what the hypothetical universalists note that is of absolutely no value uh to anyone in particular in other words it to to say that there's a bank account somewhere that could help you but th without an intention on the part of the person who has the bank account that he sets it aside for you means nothing. Like it means nothing to you if you're in jail, unless you have some relationship to uh, say Donald Trump, that means nothing to you that he has the money to get you out. Like to what end is that helpful to you in any way? Why would that ground a gospel offer? Why would that ground anything whatsoever? And in fact, so Davenin, I, I don't know how much of you you all notice this, and this is this is something that uh, I would think analytical theology would be quite interested in, is and this is something that doesn't come up in modern discussions of these debates, but a big point that the hypothetical universalists wanted to make was um, they wanted to use the hypothetical of angels, the fallen angels. On what grounds, if 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 this bare sufficiency is what grounds the gospel offer, in other words, that it's infinitely valuable, if that's what grounds the gospel offer, which it does in Owen, I just reread Owen, and it absolutely does. Um, uh, if, if that's the case, why is it not, why would, if you saw a fallen angel, why could you not offer the gospel to the fallen angel? Right? Because... Because the issue is not, did he die for the fallen angel, whether or not I can offer the gospel to him. It's just simply, is it infinitely valuable? Well, of course it's infinitely valuable. Could, do we want to deny? Now, I, I know that there are other objections here that we might raise. Like we might raise the objection that that which is not assumed is not redeemable. Except for the fact, I want to note that in the early modern period, most theologians held that Christ did have a mediatorial relationship to the unfallen angels insofar as they persevered. Christ was the mediator of the unfallen angels. In other words, uh, were Christ not their mediator, that grace that kept them persevering from falling was directly tied to Christ. They held. So, so the whole unassumed nature business that Gregory Anzianza and some of these other early, you know, like, like that was never pressed too far. It was never pressed beyond its own boundaries because there is a mediatorial relationship between, at least it's the majority report among the reform. There is a minority report that denies this, but the majority report uh, in the early modern period. So all of these questions are at play. And see, so when someone asks me, what are the arguments really for, for, for Davenant and tying it to Lombardian formula and these sorts of things, there is a whole host of theological presuppositions that are at, that are at issue 
that divide, say, Owen and Davenant. Um, and so the reason that Davenant and Owen disagree on the extent of the atonement is not because they simply answered that question differently. They're answering all sorts of other questions differently. For example, John Owen dislikes any notion of an intentionality in God that does not result in the final end being uh, being um, uh, effectuated. Whereas, uh, l let me just press this question a little bit. Did God create all human beings with the end that they glorify God and enjoy him forever? Are you, are you asking? Us I mean, I don't know. Do, do you think that that's a, do you think generally people agree with that? Yes. Yes. I have no idea, given what I've read in Owen, at least his death of death, perhaps he addresses this elsewhere. But I, I mean, again, I just read the death of death. I have no idea how he doesn't, how he wouldn't claim that God failed in giving people that end and yet them not reaching it. Like, I, I have no idea because he constantly says if Christ died for the end of making a satisfaction for sins that people would be able to be redeemed and yet they don't get redeemed by it. He says God fails over and over and over again. Like this is like a refrain of his, right? He does not like God giving ends that aren't actually achieved. Yet that happens all the time. In fact, so this is where I think Davenant is a better Thomist than Owen is because Owen or because Thomas d strongly distinguishes between provident, well, he doesn't strongly distinguish. He, he distinguishes carefully between providence and predestination. Providence is a general ordering to an end, but what makes providence not predestination is that predestination is God's willing that the end actually come about ergo predestined to bring about the end whereas providence is a general ordering to an end but it allows the creature to basically fail to achieve its end right this is how you have sin this is literally his argument for how you have sin you have sin in a world that God created good because he creates by providence and he allows the creatures to basically fail to achieve their ends, right? And, and so for Thomas, Thomas is completely fine with having a willingness for certain things without that willingness in God actually achieving the end. Owen has no time for that. He has no time for that. So again, what I'm noting is not that what I'm simply noting is that there's doctrine of God issues involved in why Owen and Davenant disagree. And until you overcame those, you're never going to, you're never going to overcome the hypothetical universalist issue, right? Like there's all sorts of other things, nature of satisfaction, right? Issues involved. So I, I've been talking. I, I think this gets at the, the, the wills of God and the divine decrees and everything. So right. maybe, maybe it would be helpful to, and we've been hitting at this, but I think it would be helpful for the listeners if we could, you know, 
just zoom in on this early modern period uh, controversy. And so we, we have basically, and I know this isn't exactly right, but basically we have three groups. We have what we've been calling the Owenian reformed group. Yeah, this is, this we, is the status quo of kind of Calvinism, pop Calvinism today, right? Yeah. I mean, Right. So you have you have those on one end, you have the Armenians on the other, and then you have uh, Davenant. I guess you would put him in the middle. So now you be Davenant for a second and and turn to the, the Armenian side and say, this is my main objection against yes. you. And then turn to the Owenian side yes. and say, this is my main objection. My, my, my main objection against the Armenians, if I'm Davenant, um, and this is very clear in his writings, the first thing is it's semi-Pelagian. Um, so it, it has a whole conditional predestination. Uh, it doesn't hold to God being the ultimate cause of our first steps of effectual grace, like regeneration in our modern lingo or something like that, right? That that instead what happens, because the Arminians in the day are basically saying that God gives basically in kind of Roman Catholic terms now, although although some of the Arminians pick up on this, uh, and it's not Roman, it's not all Roman Catholics, it's some Roman Catholics, although the majority of them, uh, like God gives kind of sufficient grace to all people and those who kind of respond to that sufficient grace rightly, then get more grace and effectual grace, these sorts of things, right? Uh, that's the art where Davenant hates that crap. Um, Davenant has no time for that. Um, now, of course, he is, that's, he's not Thomistic on this. Uh, and I, I mentioned this briefly in my book, if you noted it, uh, the, the, there are like two places in all of Davenant's corpus that I know of where he just flat out seems to deny what, Thomas says, and this is one of the places. Um, anyways, um, so so at the heart, um, when it comes to the atonement, at least, at the heart of the objection, so you'll see how this relates to effectual grace, at the heart of Davenant's objection to the Arminian position is that they deny that God the Father had an intention that Christ would merit by his person and work the the lordship and the gifts by which he would grant that he would grant the elect the ability to believe and then persevere in their belief so so that so remember the lombardian formula in its original language david actually notes this it's christ died for the elect alone in a certain way. How? Effectually. In other words, in redemption accomplished. This isn't redemption applied language. This is redemption accomplished that will result in redemption applied. But in redemption accomplished, there was a sense in which he only died for the elect. Namely, to merit certain gifts that would be effectually or that would be infallibly applied to the elect alone so that's the one side so so in one sense he says the arminians deny the latter part of the lombardian formula and then he turns around and says so this is to go against the owenians davenant against the owenians of course by the way owen is later than davenant so you know i'm speaking speaking right. in yeah. our lingo not his lingo 
the our, our, the Owenian model is that it denies the former. It denies an intentionality to die for the non-elect. It denies that God intended Christ to make a universal remedy such that if anyone believes they can be saved. Uh, th that, uh, yeah, so can I press this last bit a little bit more? Sure, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so here's Davenant's argument in a nutshell against the Owenian position relative to the gospel offer. So I got a little bit of pushback on uh, Twitter the other day uh, from a guy saying that uh, Davenant's claim that the Owenian position can't hold to a free offer of the gospel is too strong. And I'm not going to adjudicate that conversation that I had. However, um, let me note uh, that, that the can't there is not anything more than can't consistently hold to a free offer of the gospel. He realized that people held to both Christ died for the elect alone and we're giving a free offer of the gospel. He just didn't think it was consistent. Here's the argument in brief. All right. Now this is very much my own lingo of this. Okay. So I'm 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 doing a little bit of analytical theology here with regard to I'm like transposing it into more philosophical theological jargon of our day. Okay. Um, and I'm systematizing it a little bit because Davenant never talks about it exact, exactly in this way, but. He he does have this. This is this is part of his argument here. Um, on on what grounds is God able to forgive any person of their sins? Now, if you hold to any sort of satisfaction theory, it's the satisfaction of Christ, right? For sin, for sins. So the sins that can be forgiven are the sins. The sins that are able to be forgiven are the sins for which Christ made satisfaction for. Now, he thinks that in the gospel offer, even if it's not stated, although he thinks it should be stated, is this bare minimum claim that antecedent to your belief. So he comes to you, unbeliever. He says, antecedent to your belief, God is able to forgive you of your sins. Because of what Christ did. Now, the only way that that can be is that if Christ died for those or Christ made satisfaction for those sins. He, you know, whether or not you need to be able to say Christ died for all is, is well, that's assumed if you hold that Christ made satisfaction for those sins. But 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 in the whole when when people he's noting that when preachers are talking about the gospel offer, he's like, what more is it than that God has done something in Christ? that allows him to forgive you of your sins now. And what could that be but that he made satisfaction for your sins? And as soon as you've owned that, you've owned the game. You've given it up to Davenant. Owen is done at that point. <laughs> I think that, that one of the the best parts about you know his, his formula here is because the way you've been describing it, it almost seems like, um, you know, that, that all men are made savable. And of course, that's a common objection against Arminianism, but built into Davenant's formula is also the infallible yeah. application yeah, yeah, of the atonement. Yeah, right. So like all those objections that the, the, you know, so the objection over and over by Owen and others is, and they're largely thinking about the Arminian way of talking about all of this, is basically that the death of Christ didn't make men savable. It made 
men saved or something like that, right? Right. And, well, yeah, in Davin it says, yeah, both. It means yeah, because, all because men it, savable and some men saved. Because I do think it's a legitimate uh, objection that to the Arminian that, well, if Christ died to make all men savable, then, then Christ could have... At hypothetically. least hypothetically, you know, hypothetically, he could have died, and everyone could have oh, gone to totally. hell. I think that that's a, I think that's a huge problem in Arminianism. And in fact, yeah. Grevenkovius, Nicholas Grevenkovius, a a remonstrant at the period, he explicitly says this. He explicitly mm-hmm. says that given what every, given the death of Christ, it could have been possible, because of course, for him, ultimately, it's it's uh it's the human will. That is the ultimate right. adjudicator of this. But for Davenant, it is the human will is never the ultimate adjudicator of why some people are saved and some people are not. It's predestination and predestination using the means of the death of Christ is one of the means by which he saves the elect alone. So his so the dual intentionality in yes. his formula gets around that. Yeah, objection. it gets around yeah. all of that. So there are other objections. Of course, we all know the main objection to Davenant's position. The main objection to Davenant's position, at least popular popularly, is double payment. Right. Is if he if if he satisfied for sins, how can he hold the same people for whose sins he made satisfaction for accountable? Now. I don't want to really adjudicate that as much as to note that um, many people in the period, reform people in the period, did not find that objection uh, good. One, they noted that if the person himself is paying it, then yes, you can't double pay the same person twice. So like if, if someone was sent to hell to pay for their sins and then they were like released, they couldn't then pay a second time in hell for those same sins. But as soon as you substitute, um, that that changes the formula. First off, more, moreover, moreover on that sort of, I'm going to use modern lingo again, pecuniary position v- view of satisfaction, uh, kind of like monetary uh, view of satisfaction. Um, it doesn't allow for Owen's strong claim in his death of death that all the elect are under God's wrath until they believe. So that what, uh, so uh, by the way, Dabney and others, Earl Dabney, Charles Hodge and others note this problem. Now they never claim, they never note it with respect to Owen, but they note the problem in having this view of satisfaction that, that, um, that it doesn't allow for the non-elect or for the elect. If you have a position that he died for the elect alone, let's say, uh, and he made satisfaction for the sins of the elect, on what grounds, for what wrath are they being held under? Uh, you know, like, how are they under God's wrath until they believe? Doesn't doesn't that presume, at the very least, do, doesn't it necessitate, if you have this view of satisfaction, that you can't, you can't be punished for the same sins twice, wouldn't that necessitate a, a justification at the cross? or a justification in eternity or something like that. And this is exactly was is one of the reasons why Baxter claimed that Owen basically position is an eternal justification position, even though Owen, of course, says otherwise, right? He just thinks he's being inconsistent. He thinks that some of Owen's reformed, hyper-Calvinistic, 
nonconformists are actually more consistent on that topic. But anyways, we're kind of getting a far field. But anyways, the double payment argument is the is the chief argument against Davenant's position. Davenant realizes this argument. He deals with it in one of his responses and just basically says, yeah, that, that only works if the person himself is doing it. But as soon yeah. as you have a substitute, all, all bets are off. God can add, you can have con conditional application of a satisfaction and all sorts of other things. So, so there's, a, I mean, there's a lot in your book we could talk about. Uh, I was thinking of talking about covenant theology and things related to that, but one, I do want to spend some time on this because I think it's fun. Uh, so you subtitled your book, A Defense of Catholic and Reformed Orthodoxy. Would you really consider hypothetical universal, uh, universalism as both Catholic and Reformed Orthodoxy? Well, uh, let's take the latter bit first. Is it Reformed? Well, uh, I tend to think that if your position is not denied, but within the bounds of the Synod of Dort, when it comes to the doctrines of grace— I'm just going to say that that's pretty confidently reformed, at least with regard to the doctrines of grace, you know, the five points of Calvinism. If you can sign off on the canons of Dort, you are good to go in my book when it comes to those sorts of things. I say this because not even the Dominicans, who are very strong on these some of these things, like everything that's written in the Synod of Dort, like perseverance especially. Right, like, so, so, uh, moreover, it's kind of set out of ignorance because Davenant actually wrote some of the theses of the second article. Like, he actually wrote some of them. Like, uh, 2 5 uh, is, is written by him or by the delegation, but I'm very confident that he is probably the one that wrote it. There's only like two or three options, and Davenant's the man. Davenant wrote it. But either way, uh, I mean, I, I I think I just that's a that's a that's a that's a very educated guess um, on that topic. So so with response to reformed theology, not, here's another reason why he he would be reformed. He defends. Well, not only is he almost universally beloved, John Arrowsmith, Westminster divine, very 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 prolific in his day, very well known called him the Augustine of his period. Now, time out. If he's playing with Arminianism, are you going to call him the Augustine of his age? That sounds quite unlikely to me. Um, you might call him the, the, the Ambrose of his day. You might call him the, uh, the, 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 the Jerome of his day. But that's not what he was called. He was called the Augustine of his day. Why? Because he was a defender of Augustinian grace through and through. And not just Augustinian grace, but Augustinian grace as expressed in Reformed theology in the period. So I his Reformed credentials are like, I mean, dude, he was a delegate at the Synod of Dort. Come on. Um, when it comes to Catholic theology, um, I would want someone to point to me another theologian who not who doesn't just seek to defend the reformed faith like it is the way uh uh but also claims that his 
that that position is also the historic faith more than Davenant. So let's take one issue in particular. A very debated point in the early modern period was what Augustine's position on perseverance of the saints was. The majority position was actually that Augustine denied perseverance of the saints. And Davenant is a strong defender, largely privately. He does not talk about this a lot. He, it comes up a little bit. But, but very much privately to Samuel Ward and to some other folk, okay? He is uh, in letters and stuff. He, he is a strong defender that Augustine held to all the positions held at the Synod of Dort. And he claims that he himself would not have taken them had Augustine not held them. Uh, Davida is, is an Episcopalian at a time in which the early church's position on things, it's not equal to scripture. And in fact, Davenant has some pretty strong sola scriptura kind of uh, statements. Um, even in the De Morta Christi, where he'll say, I don't know why I've been quoting all these early church fathers and all these modern guys when I can just quote scripture. Like he'll say this, right? Okay, so that gives you an indication that ultimately he thinks scripture is being most authoritative. However, However, he also, um, in 1572, there was a, now he was born uh, uh, um, um, around that time as well, so when this document was created, um, but in 1572, 1571-1572-1571-1572-1571-1572-1571-1572-1571-1572-1571-1572-1571-1572-1571-1572-1571-1572-1571-1572-1571-1572-1571-1572-1571-1572-1571-1572-1571-1572-1571-1572-1571-1
uh, finishing of this treatise under my hand, which is now about five months ago, but also the printing of some part of it, the two dissertations of Dr. Davenant, of the death of Christ, and of predestination and reprobation were set forth, in both which, especially the former, the death of Christ, um, uh, uh, in which, uh, especially the former, there are sundry assertions, positions, and theses differing from what is delivered in the ensuing treatise, and as I suppose, repugnant unto truth itself. In other words, uh, especially in Demorta Christi, there's a whole bunch of stuff that I dislike in it. Okay, fine. Then, this is the next sentence. The whole of those persuasions of Davenant's, I confess, which he endeavoreth in them to maintain, is suited to the expressions of sundry learned men as Austin, Hillary, Fulgentius, and Prosper, who in their generations deserved exceeding well of the Church of God. But that is free from opposition to the scripture or indeed self-contradiction is not so apparent. In other words, by the way, the Austin is Augustine there. He is basically saying that he's admitting the fact that Davenant sounds like Augustine, Prosper, Fulgentius, and Hillary. By the way, that's like the, the four-headed August, Augustinian monster in the <laughs> fifth and fourth, fifth, or no, fifth, sixth centuries. Okay, like that. Those are the names of the Augustinians against the Pelagians and semi-Pelagians. And he is saying, yeah, I agree. He talks like these guys, but whether or not it's truthful and godly and scriptural, no. He's admitting to me he's given up for Davenant. By saying something like that, Owen has given up the game because for Davenant, he just simply is not going to hold. He's not going to talk in ways that are not historic. And for Owen, Owen's okay with that, ultimately. Owen's okay with that, because if it's not scriptural, he just doesn't care. Yeah. Like, that's not an impulse of his. It is an impulse of Davenant to be Catholic. And that's why I emphasize the Catholicity. Davenant is not... Ironically enough, people have painted hypothetical universalism as trying to be, like, novel. At least with Davenant, there is no interest in novelness whatsoever. And no one can read his stuff and think he's ever trying to be novel. I just think you are incapable of reading if you come to that conclusion. <laughs> so I, I have I have one final question right. before we uh, before we wrap yeah. up. So uh, in reading the the earlier sections of your book, it it, it was. Uh, fairly clear that you were less than pleased with most of the modern uh, treatments of uh, discussions of the atonement in the early modern period. So um, as someone who spent years studying this, what do you think are some of the more specific areas that um, are, are good avenues for research that more work needs to be done when it comes to uh, atonement controversies in the, uh, in the early modern period? Well, um, so I, 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 if you know Latin, if you do French, uh, I, I still think there's a lot of work in the German Reformed churches. So there's a lot of hypothetical universalism in the German Reformed churches, not only because of what Ursinus says in his commentary, which is basically Davenantian, but then also David Piraeus and some of these other guys are, are kind of arguing for what's called hypothetical universalism. 
there's a lot of actually uh, Doherty. There's some Doherty and delegates that were also German, uh, German speaking. They're kind of north northwestern German, so almost Belgic. But anyways, um, modern day Belgium. But anyways, they they also uh, were teaching hypothetical universalism and wrote on it. No one's really done work on that at all. Um, and then also the the French Amy Roldians. So one of the one of the persistent questions that I get asked asked about this is, well, okay, can you can you can you can you explain how our mini uh, or how Amy Rowe and some of those other guys, Cameron and some of the other guys at uh, the uh, the Academy of Summer uh, differed with da- uh, Davenin? And my response is always. You know, it took me years to really uh, grasp um, uh, Davenant. And I just quite honestly have not read... I I have probably read more than your average human being. No, I know I've read more than your average human being because I read Latin uh, from uh, from Amy Rowe. But I, I, I do not... That's... I, I, that's not my world. I don't. I don't read Amy Rowe uh, much. Um, it's when I say it's not my world. It's just a world that I haven't really studied all that much. And I, I think that there's a lot of work into trying to explain precisely how Amy Rowe is dealing with some of these questions vis-a-vis the broader reformed picture that we now have, because the people that were doing the work at the time. They were kind of reading Amy Rowe in isolation from the broader reformed tr- reform tradition, and they were often reading him through the lens of Francis Turretin, who's actually later, instead of reading Amy Rowe as someone who would have been bequeathed the tradition. They're reading him as like, how did people respond to Amy Rowe? And like reading, it's almost like a like a like a quasi. Um, uh, Whiggish interpretation of history, vis-a-vis uh, the, the 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 Amy Raldian controversy, and so you know I'm curious, where is where is I mean I know they say that Cameron is getting this, but then okay, where's Cameron getting some of this stuff, and why is he saying it, and um, are other people like in Germany saying these sorts of things? How close or how far is it from what? Uh, you here in England. So I, I just think there's a lot of, listen, as, as you all know, uh, historical theology in the early modern period is is wide open. There's just so many things uh, that could be dealt with. Almost everything is up in the air. One, because no one reads Latin anymore. And then with, in a world in which people did read Latin, the, the sources were not accessible. So Charles Hodge reads Lat, read Latin way better than I do. Right. Except for the fact that Charles Hodge had almost no ability to read the wide range of sources that I'm able to read on my computer at the at any given instance. I can get any book I want, literally any book I want, either from Ebo or Google Books. I can pretty much get everything. So I can see the broadness. I can see like like things that aren't just stuck at Princeton Library in the 19th century. So today we have more sources available to us than ever, but we also have the least amount of people that are able to access those sources. So it's a weird thing. Had you given Hodge this, our source, our, our, our availability, or like 
and I just use Hodge as an illustration. I mean, any 19th century American theologian, British theologian, anyone, they would have just killed it. I mean, we would have nothing to write. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I feel like that, right? Like, it all would have been written. But they just didn't have access to the sources. Like, yeah. people knew about Davidence to Morta Christi. This is, I know, you. this is a podcast. This is one of the 600 volumes that was printed in 1650. There were only 600 of them. Total in the whole world, right? So if you wanted to read this thing and you were in England or no, you were in Germany, you were completely out of luck. You have never even seen this. It's written in Latin, but it was only published in one place in 1650 and there were only 600 of them. Like you might've heard the David wrote a treatise on that. Good luck getting one. How are you gonna get one? Yeah, well, this has been super fun and helpful and interesting i mean i'm telling you guys if you're listening I, I, if you're not convinced now that you need to find a copy of of dr lynch's book and read it then i don't i don't know how i can help you to convince you to read the book uh so i think it's great i think it's super fun as you've noticed and dr lynch do, do you have a website i can't remember like a personal website or anything uh i i, I do post free translations of things i'm translating uh, it's uh, a sub stack and you can find that through my Twitter or okay. email me or something. Perfect. So I'll make sure to link to the sub stack in the, the show notes so you can go click on that and read that. Uh, but thank you. Uh, huge thank you to, yeah, thank for you. talking with us. This has been a lot of fun. And I know all, all of our listeners will have really enjoyed it. So for you who have been listening, thanks for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.